This podcast is brought to you by the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Welcome to the War Studies Podcast. My name is Kirk Allen. What are extralegal groups in the context of post-conflict societies? How can trade play a role in state building? And how do we define a good state? These are just a few questions that I discussed with Dr. Christine Cheng, lecturer in the Department of War Studies and author of the recent book, Extralegal Groups in Post-Conflict Liberia, How Trade Makes the State. In her latest book, Dr. Cheng writes, where the state is weak and political authority is contested, where rule of law is corrupted and government distrust runs deep, Extralegal groups can provide order and dispute resolution, forming the basic kernel of the state. Drawing on fieldwork and socio-historical analysis, Dr. Chang explains how extralegal groups were incentivized to provide basic forms of governance as they attempted to form stable commercial environments during Liberia's transition from war to peace. Her recent book has highlighted many important questions around state formation and how the West should approach post-conflict societies. But don't take my word for it. Let's get right to our interview. I first asked Dr. Cheng, what exactly are extra-legal groups? So I'll give you the formal definition first, and then I'll try and work through some of those ideas. So the formal definition of an extra-legal group is that it's a set of individuals with a proven capacity for violence, working outside the law primarily for profit, and they provide governance functions to sustain their business interests. So the key part here is that they're providing governance functions in order to sustain their business interests. The other bits, you know, violent groups, lots of non-state armed groups, and the way we think about war, that sounds kind of familiar to us. But the second bit in terms of providing governance, that's a little bit more unusual. And the reasons why they provide governance are also unusual. So a different way to think about the kind of entity that I'm talking about is to think of an informal business group in a way and think about them as having coercive capacity. So that would be an alternate reading of the kind of thing that I'm talking about. Um, These groups, as I talk about them in the book, I'm dealing with them at a very nascent stage and I'm talking about them with respect to Liberia. But I think if you think about the definition in terms of a group with some kind of capacity for violence and then some ability to provide governance in order to do trade, They exist in actually lots of different places. So gangs do some of this. The mafia does some of this stuff. Um, There are, you know, narco-trafficking groups that do some of this kind of work. The Somali pirate syndicates arguably provide this kind of, um, are this kind of entity. So it's the way that I talk about it in the book is to provide a framework for thinking about what these groups are. And then I talk about it in the context of Liberia. But the framework itself can be applied to lots of different places. And it's a helpful way of thinking about things, not just with the lens of politics in mind, but with an economic lens in mind. So how do these groups form, uh, I guess, specifically in the context of post-conflict Liberia or, or during conflict? So I talk about it 
in terms of three different stages. And the first stage is really about how they emerge. And to think about how they emerge, you actually have to think about who these people are. And most of the time, not all of the time, but most of the time, it's young men. Um, they tend to have come from a situation of conflict, they were fighting, and now the war has ended. And they're looking for something else to do. Now, in a place like Liberia, there aren't a lot of choices if you don't have any skills and you don't have any money and you've just come out of a conflict. So the question is, where can you go given your limited skills and your limited capital? And I argue that they all end up being attracted to the same kinds of places doing very similar things. So they go to resource areas where they can basically do manual labor of some kind. So places, I would argue, structurally as low barriers to entry. So what parts of the economy have very low barriers to entry in Liberia? Well, it's basically the rubber sector, it's, and it's alluvial diamond mining. And if you have more money and better access to capital, you might be involved in logging. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that people end up doing. So then you get a whole lot of people coming out of that situation. And so they all end up in very specific geographical locations. It's places where they can do that rubber tapping, so specific rubber plantations, or it's specific areas that have the alluvial diamond mining. And so all of these folks all end up in the same place. Now, at this point, they have to figure out um, how they're going to do their work in a way that uh, creates a stable business environment, right? So if you are running a business, you need some kind of physical security, but at the same time, you're working around lots of people who were formerly quite violent. And how do you enforce contracts amongst people all with some degree and familiarity with you know, coercive capacity? And that's the difficulty, right? So out of that environment, if you're having disputes around prices, if you're having disputes around goods, or frankly, around women, um, how do you deal with these kinds of problems? Somebody needs to come forward and provide that governance structure. So what I argue happens is out of that situation, you, you get some kind of group that rises up and either uh, becomes the most dominant or was previously more dominant, but somehow some coalition, some formation of group comes together to provide that governance. So that's the first stage. The group has now emerged. And after the group emerges, the question is what happens so that they can grow? And they begin taxing. And the reason they begin taxing is because they realize that it could be a lot easier to raise money through taxes rather than to actually do the work themselves. And it's more lucrative to do that and it's more stable. So some of them start to you know, start the taxation process. But the interesting thing about taxation, and again, this is borrowed from Tilly, um, is that you can actually end up growing the organization, not just financially, but also organizationally. So you develop some kind of organizational stronghold. And so the group grows and just you know, is better at managing itself. So that's the second stage where the group actually develops into something further and bigger. The third stage is around entrenchment. Now that you've got a hold of the area, you're, you're controlling the rubber plantation or the diamond mining area relatively well, and you're collecting these taxes, you've got an infrastructure of sorts. 
Now you want to hold on to it. And the trick is, how do you do that for a long period of time? If you think that the state is going to come and take over your rubber tapping um, operation or your diamond mine, then how do you actually hold on to it? And the trick here is you bribe local officials. You bribe as many of them as you possibly can and for as long as possible. And in a place like Liberia, after the end of the Civil War, it's pretty cheap to do that, right? Mm -hmm. The state doesn't exist in the way that we are familiar with states. The police don't have any kind of infrastructure. They have, forget cars, right? Forget, you know, well-functioning computers and uh, everything else that we think about in terms of an infrastructure. The police officers, many of them that I spoke to, didn't even have pens and pencils or paper. If you were to be arrested, for example, you'd have to bring your own food into the jail in order to be fed, right? There were no handcuffs. There's n- nothing that we think about in terms of what a police station might look like in the West. So given that very weak infrastructure, like with the police as an example, you can see how easy it is to give somebody a bit of money and then to bring them along so that they don't cause trouble for you. But the trick is you can actually do it with all parts of the government. You can do it with your politicians, you can do it with uh, the military, you could do it with perhaps even your local UN peacekeepers if you have enough. Um, You could do it with anybody who might cause you trouble in that situation. And that causes this situation that I call entrenchment, right? It becomes very, very difficult then to, um, to cede control back to the state. If the state decides that the central government, in this case, in Monrovia, wants to come back and take over this area. It's really, really hard to do that without you ha- without being able to disrupt all of that um, bribery infrastructure all at once. So that entrenchment situation, if you follow it through to the long, long run, you could end up with um, what some scholars have termed the, the criminalization of the state. And the you know, a good example of that would be Italy and and what Sicily looks like today as an example. So I want to get to one of the key questions asked in your book. How can trade make the state? So the literature often talks about the fact that it's war that makes the state, right? And again, this follows from Tilly and the creation of Western European states and how that second bit of the argument that I talked about in terms of the framework, that it is taxation, you know, the need to, to, to get, gain money for um, raising money for war is the thing that creates the bureaucracy. And it's the bureaucracy that eventually becomes the state. That bit of the argument is what a lot of people seize on as the fact that it's war that makes a state, right? So we think about what the state is, it's, you know, bureaucracy and institutions and raising money and taxation, all of that wrapped up together, you know, throw that in with some national interest and, you know, we've got the state as we think about it. What I'm trying to do here in the book is to think about, well, what is a state, right? It's To me, it's if you want to narrow it down in a really basic, the most basic kind of way, it comes down to two things, right? It's about um, 
it's about physical security in some sense, right? So the Weber sense of uh, monopolization of the legitimate use of force. And then the second piece of it, though, I think is equally important, and that's around um, impartial justice, trying to provide some kind of, if you want to think about it this way, rule of law. But you need both pieces, and you can't just have... I think it's more than just the former. I think you absolutely need um, the second piece of it as well. And um, taken together, then we understand how that comes about. And the groups basically do this, right? And they, they don't do it because they want to build a state. They're not thinking of building a state. They're just thinking about trying to survive. But I think it's out of the desire to, you know, create their business and to have their trade work that they do these two things. They're forced essentially to do these two things for the sake of having uh, the, you know, the rubber tapping work or their uh, diamond mining work. You need those two things. So they're doing it almost by accident. It's a byproduct of what is going on. But essentially, they are building the very, very kernel of the state in providing those functions. That's what I'm talking about, right? So once you build out from there, I think, you know, everything else that we do is extra, right? Those are extra functions. I mean, providing welfare and, you know, education and health and all of that. Those are all social welfare functions. You can have a state without those other things. And there are lots of states that don't do any of this and still consider themselves to still be states, right? But at the very heart of the state, I think, are those two things. And if you look at these groups, they are doing or trying to do those two things, but they're not doing it to build a state. They're doing it for business interests. So that's why the, I think the second bit of the, the title, the how trade makes the state bit, it says something different than what has been said already about why we create states. So the, the state uh, appears in, in this sense, I guess to me, to be an un, unintended consequence of trade. Yes. In your book, you state that social and historical context matters if you want to fully understand the development of extra-legal groups. What did you mean by this? I think that when we think about civil wars, a lot of the time the history of a country isn't taken into account as much as it should be, right? So we're often looking only at the lens of the period during the war, and we don't think about all the factors that, that took us there, that got us to that point. And in the case of Liberia, if you go back into the history of the country, you can see some of these themes recurring, but you wouldn't see them if you weren't looking for them, right? And that's the trick that I think some of these dynamics are not unique to the Civil War period, that there is a, there is a, an echoing of the past in things that are happening, right? So the first thing that I spent some time talking about is the, you know, Liberia is famously said to be the place where freed slaves from America settled and then um, they formed this new country, and so it's a story, it's a, self, it's a narrative of liberation and freedom, right? And the reality of that is far from 
that beautiful truth, <laughs> or far from that beautiful myth that, that has just been, you know, broadly thought of in the West. So this, the way in which the, the settlers, the Americo-Liberians, as they called themselves way, way back when, um, when they moved from America to West Africa, the, the initial relationship between that very small group of 120 odd people and the people around them was extremely antagonistic, right? They, they came over and they basically took over a piece of land and they did it with the backing of the American military uh, with, the barrel, with the barrel of a gun held to the head of a local chief. And they didn't have a concept of land ownership and property rights. So they didn't even understand what they were being forced to give away. Mm -hmm. And when they were finally confronted with the fact that these people were here to stay and they were going to take that land, and then they fought that war against the 121 settlers, you know, that turned out, I think, to set the course of the relationship that then took us all the way out to Tolbert 100 and, you know, 100 and whatever, 20, 30, 50 years later. That dynamic was rooted right at the very beginning. And we keep, the settlers and the Americo-Liberians became so powerful over time, but they didn't start out that way. And they created this very separate polity. They, they thought of themselves really as being better than the people around them who were barbarous and uncivilized and dirty and they lived in the bush and they weren't educated and you know, they were just an underclass of people and they were treated like that. So, but on the, on the other hand, right, the, the same was true actually of the native people who were there. They didn't want anything to do with the Americo-Liberians either. They wanted to maintain their own separate politics and run things their own separate way. But the way in which that relationship evolved over time, uh, it meant that the Congos, also known as the Americo-Liberians, they became quite powerful they came to dominate, but they were maybe between two and five percent of the population. So two two to five percent of the population dominating the other ninety five percent as an underclass. I mean, that's going to be, you know, that's going to have the ingredients for a disaster coming, right? When you control all of the wealth, all of the wealth and all of the power, political, economic, social, all of it, legal everything is dominated by one group that is a very small minority you've just all it's going to take is a spark right and that's basically what happened to understand how all of that played out and then led to the rise of samuel doe who was part of um, the group that led a coup to take over the executive mansion and then um, how that played out in terms of trying to replicate the same kind of power politics that the Americo-Liberians had run, right? So they had run a kind of benevolent dictatorship is maybe too strong, <laughs> but essentially they were handing out favors and running it as a very personalized kind of state, right? It was a state that was run for a particular group, but it wasn't by that point, you know, by the 1970s, it wasn't really done with direct violence in the same way that it was at the beginning. And so this, 
this evolution of the relationship had turned into something that was more about patronage politics, right? Where you had a little bit of divide and rule and you know, local chiefs were brought into the system. They were paid reasonably well. You know, they, they got their bits out of the system too, but it was still dominated completely by the Americo Liberians, right? So that group was still in control. When you get to Samuel Doe, he comes in and he tries to run things the same way, right? In that patronage politics kind of way, but he is much more brutal. It just things get out of hand. He doesn't know how to manage things when people want to take over power. He doesn't know how to work through the state, right? Because they've gotten rid of all of the people who had ministerial and bureaucratic competence, right? right. They, those are all American librarians. So they're trying to create a state from almost from scratch in many ways, right? So they realize they have to actually co-op some of the people that they didn't like from before, from the America regime. But they're terrified that they're going to come back and, and take over. They're also terrified that other groups, so Doe was particularly terrified about um, his close friend and ally, Thomas Kiyompa, who was going to come in and, and take over his power. And then that turns into an ethnic identity crisis. And then there is a kind of almost ethnic, there is an ethnic cleansing that takes place in this region of Liberia. And then out of that, Charles Taylor comes in and he is able to mobilize people because of that particular um, overreaction from Tom, from um, Samuel Doe to try and wipe out that particular group who posed a threat to him. So then Taylor comes in and says, actually, I'm going to mobilize you and we will get rid of Samuel Doe because he has become a crazy dictator. And that's where Alan Johnson Sirleaf comes in as well, right? So at that point in time, everybody hates Doe. They think he's he's extremely brutal and corrupt, and he is the the most extreme version of what that Americo regime uh, was before, right? So people are actually longing for the days of the America regime in comparison to what they had then. That's how desperate they are to get rid of him. And then out of that comes all of the bit of the civil war. But you have all of these things that are echoing through history in terms of how people are used and coerced and how labor is conscripted and you know how the international community America in particular and the role of resources, particularly the, the relationship with Firestone, you know, how all of that plays into um, this patronage politics, resource wars dynamic. All of it has, well, a lot of it, you can see that this isn't the first time this particular bit of it happened. We've seen it before and you just see it recurring. So the, like, t the richness of the history, if you look back, you'll see that it really gives you a sense of almost just a foreshadowing of, oh, I can see why that happened, right? And you can also really empathize with, weirdly empathize with Taylor at different times and empathize with Doe, right? He's not terribly educated, Doe, and he's really paranoid. And he has right to be paranoid, right? Because people have tried to kill him and take over his position, right? Yeah. So then he retaliates by being more brutal. His only version of the state that he's ever known is one of patronage politics. And 
the way in which he came to power was when um, Tolbert actually tried to shut things down and use violence against protesters, right? So it is out of this moment of protest and violence. So he sees that the state can be violent when it needs to be. He, in a way, is using that justification to be equally but more violent, right? To shut down the people that are going to cause, that are going to pose a threat to his ability to rule. So in his mind, he's not really doing anything all that bad uh, or all that worse than what came before, right? So it is a repetition of the past. Again, right? you learn from what you have experienced and what you've seen before. You're not, you're not doing anything terribly different, right? And Taylor too. People really demonize Taylor, but I don't think that Charles Taylor would have turned into the kind of, I don't think he would have fought the kind of civil war that he ended up fighting if he hadn't been backed into a corner, right? So if you if you read through the history section of this book, I mean, I come to a point where there was arguably a moment where you know there was a deal done where Taylor was supposed to actually take control of the country. And there was an agreement that he was going to do that. But then somebody reneged on the agreement. I mean, arguably it was the US, that they reneged on the agreement. And so he didn't get to, he didn't get to take control of the country. So he had to fight his way through. And the process of doing that turned him into a much more brutal person and a much more brutal president then maybe he would have been if he'd just been allowed to take power initially, right? You can imagine an alternate version of events where they fought the war in the first year and then he came to power and then he became more of a, a Robert Mugabe kind of person, mm. right? I can imagine maybe that, that actually even in the first five or 10 or 20 years, uh, things would have gone reasonably well. He was for many, many years, he was backed by the United States, right? Like he had an American education. He was also extremely charismatic. Um, he could have been a different kind of president, but that's not what happened. Right. And it's it's interesting to see how how differently things might have been. I don't think that I don't think that he he's inherently evil or inherently brutal. I think that circumstances really shaped the kind of the kind of war that was fought, what he needed to do in order to stay in power and to keep himself alive because he was also constantly under threat, right? So it's either kill or be killed, torture or be tortured. Those are your choices. And I think that, yeah, that, that helps explain why, why things played out the way they did. Also, I wanted to ask you about one of the themes that you cover in your book, the good state. What is the good state? How, how do we define that? Exactly. You, you are asking exactly the right question. So this is to say that the, the way in which we think about the state is questionable, right? That the, if you grew up, if you're reading this book, if you're listening to this podcast, I can almost bet money that you are coming from either a relatively wealthy background, you're Western, you're educated, um, you have a number of ways in which you normally associate with the state and they're all good, right? The state isn't probably being good to you in most senses 
uh, from economic, social, educationally, you know, politically, the state has been a, a force for good in your life. It has been a relatively benevolent entity, right? It's done things that work in your favor. It has created a public interest. You are used to a state that works. Now, that's not how other people experience the state in the places that we're talking about. And we make assumptions then that, oh, if it worked like this for us, then, and we mean this often very genuinely, then other people can have the same, right? What they need is a state that looks like ours. What they need is the same kind of structures and opportunities. And so why don't we take this thing that we have and give them the same things that we have, and then they can have them too, right? So this comes from a good place, right? It comes from a it comes from the, the right place in our hearts, trying to do good for other people. But it doesn't work in a practical sense because the contexts are completely different. The social systems and the state capacity and the resources, you know, a lot of that just isn't there. And we're making presumptions about what other people want and how it should work and the way things should be organized based on our own experiences. Now, like I was saying earlier, if the state has been stealing from you, killing people that you know, and doing these awful and horrible things, then do you really want more of the state, right? A lot of these people, I think, don't want more of the state. If they're really, really lucky, the state has basically stayed away from you and you don't actually see any state presence at all. You know, in parts of Liberia that have been very, very far from the center, uh, you know, the roads barely go there and the villages are very small and you're on a dirt road and it takes a day to travel to the main road and then it takes another two days by car in rainy season and more money than, you know, you'll make in months to get to Monrovia. The, the idea of the state is very, very far away and very distant from your experience. So, you know, maybe the best that can be said is you're left alone and the state has no impact on your life, right? So do you really want more state? Right? When more state can mean a state like Charles Taylor's state, where you basically have a civil war. So if you're coming from that kind of mindset, is it always a good state? Is more always good? Is more state always good? Right. And should we be thinking about the state in the way that we think about it or the way that local people might be thinking about it? Be because for, for some people, the, the state might be a scary thing. The state is often a scary thing. Right? And you can see why that would be the case, given their experiences. Lastly, I want to know how you suggest that scholars, NGOs, and governmental organizations should approach extra-legal groups through research or peacebuilding efforts. So first, uh, how should scholars approach the study of extra-legal groups? So when I came to this work, I had a very... Canadian Western view of what I thought these groups were and I would say that I really thought of them as being quite bad and being bad for the state and all I could see were the negative things that they were contributing to and the kinds of problems that they posed to the state and again this goes back to what I was saying about the good state that's because I thought of the state as being this very good entity that of course we should try and build up and reinforce and then when I started to see what these groups were and I started to see how problematic the state was, I had to rethink those ideas. So for anybody that I think is interested in these kinds of groups, it is to look beyond a conventional narrative around all of the negative aspects that I think jump out at us very easily if you have a Western framework and to think about them 
within the social context of the places in which they developed, right? To to be a little bit more empathetic. Um, and I think this will, I know this will sound like heresy to a lot of people who feel like these groups are nothing but bad for a population. And that's true, except you have to think about it in contrast to what else would exist. And if you're imagining this very, perfect Western Weberian Lockean state, then yes, absolutely, it's bad. But if you're imagining, you know, if you see the reality of what else would normally turn up in those spaces, it's not necessarily better or worse than the alternative, right? Where the state is often quite predatory and, um, you know, is prone to torturing people or, you know, locking up political prisoners or, you know, crushing dissent in very violent ways or torturing people are these groups and the question is are these groups any worse than what the state was doing or will be doing that's the comparison that should be made right that that is the kind of way uh i think in which we can more realistically assess how you would want to engage. The question is in alternative to what? And I think engaging with them poses problems both for scholars and for policymakers because you don't want to set up this autonomous entity and support it and legitimize it, right? But at the same time, if you don't engage with these groups at all, you could, you know, you could all end up with alternate kinds of problems, right? If you try and disrupt these groups, then you could be disrupting an entire economic system where people are making perfectly good livelihoods and thus staying out of quote unquote trouble, right? You're keeping them out of those other kinds of more nefarious activities like joining other armed groups in the region or stealing or looting and pillaging or say, you know, getting high on drugs or whatever it may be, right? There are other social bads that have, that will happen if these kinds of groups don't operate. So it's to see this question of what these groups are and what they do in a much well, to be willing to confront both the good and the bad that they contribute to in society, to think about the the many different functions that they serve and trying to do so with less judgment than I think we normally would. Excellent. And and so I understand that you have to get the class <laughs> in about two minutes, but um, how do you think NGOs and governmental organizations should approach extra-legal groups going forward? Just a quick... Uh, maybe one minute answer. I think that in some cases you have to assess what the group is about and in some cases the groups will be more willing to behave like a state building kind of entity and in other cases they will be less willing to do that. So in some cases like on the Guthrie plantation for example the groups were more violent. And I think on the Sino-Rubber Plantation, there was a lot more working together with the community. And so you see these contrasts. You can't say that all extra-legal groups are bad, all extra-legal groups are good. Uh, you have to look at the groups themselves and assess what they are doing. And then you can think about whether or not, you know, if you think you should bring them into the state system or uh, whether or not they might actually be allowed to operate in in some kind of independent way and then to think about turning their private interests into public interests and how you would help create some kind of incentive system for that to happen perfect 
Thank you so much for joining us today, Christine Chang. Thank you, Kirk. It's a pleasure. That concludes this edition of the War Studies Podcast. If you would like to learn more about Dr. Christine Chang and her recent book, check out the podcast description below. Also, if you like this podcast, remember to like, comment, and share it wherever you listen to podcasts. And finally, for more news and information on upcoming events in the Department of War Studies, please visit our website at kcl.ac.uk forward slash war studies.